back after saying here it is. They also said it's a large and handsome dwelling house with fine lofty rooms, a veranda all round and a tempting garden by the Yarra's bank with fine fruit trees, peaches, pears, apricots, apples, lemons, grapes and mulberry trees under which were violets growing so profusely that the air was scented with them. That was a quote from a letter sent back to France from one of the four founding nuns of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd. They ventured here to found their first convent of their order in Australia. The letter dates back to the 1860s. In this episode, we hear from historians and try to track down the last surviving nun who worked the farm as we trace the history of the Abbotsford convent, focusing on its use of the farmland. I'm Dr Catherine Cavesi-Killaby. I'm in the discipline of history at the University of Melbourne. Um, My main research interest over many years has actually been as a Renaissance historian. From 1996, I have also completed works on the religious orders of women in Australia and their work. And I was approached to write the history of Good Shepherd Sisters in Australia, New Zealand and Tahiti, which of course led me to Abbotsford, which is their founding site. And of course, the Collingwood Children's Farm was founded from uh, the farms of the sisters that they established on that site. In 1838, before the nuns arrived in Australia, the Yarra River Peninsula was purchased by two English colonists, Edward Kerr and Samuel Orr. They established two houses, each with English-style farms. 25 years later, in the 1860s, these might have been farmers had totally abandoned the idea. The gold rush was on and people were moving everywhere. Archbishop of Melbourne, James Gould, called on the Sisters of Good Shepherd to bring their order to Australia. The sisters answered and arrived and straight away started searching Melbourne for the ideal location. They found on one of these trips out the property known as Abbotsford, and that was on the Collingwood Flat, as it was then known as, which uh, had a huge tent city, actually, the area around there as a result of the gold rushes. It was a really um, an area full of terrible poverty. So Abbotsford was well located in terms of the need that they might be servicing, but Abbotsford itself was in this idyllic location as it still is, of course, uh, on this bend of the river. And Abbotsford was the name given to this large, it was then unoccupied house. It was on six acres of orchard, vineyards and gardens. And when the sisters saw that, they immediately wrote back to Mary Euphrasia Pelletier in Angers and said, here it is, exclamation mark. This is what they felt was absolutely ideal because a core value of the founding ideal of the Sisters of Good Shepherd is that you must provide women who are in desperate need with a place of refuge and quiet. And Mary Fraser was quite insistent. She said, if you cannot find a place in which they can fully heal in quiet and refuge, then it would be better not to found a place at all than to found it in an unsuitable place. So if you look at foundations of the Good Shepherd anywhere, elsewhere in Australia too, but elsewhere in the world, they're always in large rural areas. 
and the high walls which come in for so much criticism and understandably young girls who find themselves on the other side of those walls might have negative reactions to them. But the ideal behind the wall was not to keep people in but was to keep the bothering world out. Those walls have been at the centre of many debates on the care and the work that the Sisters of the Good Shepherd did during their time at the Abbotsford Convent. Now, that debate is not what we're here for today. Our focus is the history of the farmland. The current province leader of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, Sister Monica Walsh, represents a different era to those of the Abbotsford Convent establishing days. I joined the Sisters in 1963, at which time the farm was functioning and my understanding is that it was providing for the needs of the the girls and the women in care as well as the sisters so that um, we had cows, we had pigs, um, I remember seeing asparagus growing, there was various products that were um, produced there so that it pretty much the convent complex in those early years was self-sufficient. No matter from what angle you look at it, the self-sufficiency of the nuns was something special. But who worked the farm then? We had sisters who worked at the farm. Um, There would have been men employed as well who would have been doing any sort of heavy lifting, um, probably slaughtering. I imagine all that took place. Uh, Again, I'm imagining. Sister Margaret Kane, who is in the aged care facility, would probably have a very good memory for that. Margaret Kane, the last surviving nun who worked the farmland back in the Sisters' Day at the convent. Well, we had about 19 or 20 cows, as I remember. I've got no records to look at. So they had to be milked morning and afternoon, and the milk taken up to the convent to an area where it was portioned out for the various parts of the establishment, which was a big institution in those days. And then the cows, of course, have to be fed, which is usually while they're milking, and unless they're being fed with hay, which is often in the paddocks. The poultry, of course, are routinely fed morning and afternoon, grains in the afternoon and mash in the mornings. Uh, there were pigs to be fed, and they got a lot of the leftovers from the food used in the place, and um, that was supplemented with whatever else was needed for them at that time. We had sows and every now and again there was a a new litter of pigs. We had, of course I didn't mention vegetables, we grew a lot of vegetables, most of the vegetables for the establishment. And uh, so we had two men looking after the vegetables, there was one man who looked after the cows, milking the cows, and I sort of helped when necessary. The convent was sold in 1975 when the Whitlam Federal Government acquired the site for $5.5 million. It was declared to be for educational and public purposes. The farm and convent became separate entities, but are still intrinsically connected by community, geography and history. Both are treasured community assets. Here's author and historian Stuart Kells on this change of titles. Well, it was a long journey from being uh, the convent to being the community arts and culture and education precinct. When it passed from the convent, it was held as essentially a university campus. La Trobe University and the University of Melbourne, predecessor organisations of their health sciences and education departments were on the site. And in the uh, 90s, 
essentially the bulk of the site was prepared for sale through the Urban Land Corporation, essentially be developed as a private development site. So Australand won a tender, Australand's a property developer, they won a tender for the development of the site essentially as as a, a gated residential community, a bit like Willsmere is now. Um, I think there were around you know, 250, 300 units they had in mind, including some high-rise development, um, which would have essentially uh, transformed the site into community residential accommodation. As soon as that plan was publicised locally, through posters and through flyers, the local community said, well, hang on a second, that's going to potentially mean that a lot of the important values of the site will be lost, not just the heritage values, but the practical use of things like the bike path and the gardens and the open space, um, potentially the farm. There was a risk that if you had intensive residential development on the edge of the farm, that those uses would clash and that the farm would actually lose out uh, in the same way that some live music venues around here have lost out to intensive development. So a whole bunch of those things coalesced to a, a grassroots campaign around the the Abbotsford Convent Coalition, which then engaged through the council and ultimately state government processes to say, well, we want to prevent this gated residential uh, development. And the way to do that was to put forward a positive alternative. And that positive alternative eventually coalesced into the idea of it being a community-owned arts precinct. And it was a long process for convincing the council and then the state government that that was the way to go. But ultimately in the early 2000s that argument was won and the whole of the site with the exception of a residual amount of land around the church and the aged care facility the majority of the site passed to the Abbotsford Common Foundation as a community asset. A fierce community campaign ensured the site stayed in public hands. It's a sentiment that keeps snowballing. Yes well at the time of the campaign the idea of trying to preserve this kind of land and prevent overshadowing of the river. All of that was a bit of a marginal argument. But now if you fast forward to to 2019 and you see the development along the river and you see the intensive development generally around here, it was very, very prescient. There's a lot of foresight in the campaign to protect this area for the community, uh, to protect the farm, to protect the bushland and, and the riverside areas and the gardens. From that point of view, it was very, very prescient. The site itself in that arts and culture you know, sphere has become as important as the zoo or the National Gallery or the Botanic Gardens. It really is a Melbourne asset and that's been reflected most recently in its listing on the National Heritage Register as, as an iconic site. So it's important for all sorts of different reasons. It's important for its Indigenous history. It's important for its conventional and architectural history. It's important for the modern layers of heritage that have been laid down. But it's one of the few comparable inner urban conventual sites that's been preserved at all anywhere in the world. You can imagine there were convents and monasteries all around the world. Most of these sites have been demolished or you know, substantially remade into other sites. So to have something which has this continuity of the architecture and the heritage and even the fact that the farm has been you know, in continuous use from Indigenous times through the whole conventual era into the modern era, those things are very, very special. And so, yeah, Melbourne really has embraced the convent as as a critical asset. And as the site has been activated, so as different buildings have been opened up and renovated, like Sacred Heart and more recently the Laundry, the potential for the convent precinct has just gone through the roof. 
That potential, Stuart is talking about, is plain to see by anyone who has visited the convent. The farm has also gone through a considerable change since the mid-1970s. Just ask Margaret Kane. <laughs> Very different. Well, one of my nieces with her children and grandchildren were visiting recently and we went down there and they kept asking me things and I said, but it looks so different from, from this angle, you know, because there was a lot of improvements had been done. Um, and, and I know the the reactions that I was getting all around me was just plain delight. If they hadn't seen something, they'd say, well, where's the goats? So I didn't even know that we found them and I saw the goats and had a chat with them or whatever and really enjoyed seeing each thing. That's it for episode two of the Collingwood Children's Farm podcast. If you'd like to hear extended conversations, just visit the farm's website and head to the Education Resources page. All of these conversations are there in full. The Abbotsford Convent and the Sisters of the Good Shepherd are also both online. A big thanks to all who've given time to make this podcast possible. We hope you learnt something and enjoyed it. See you in episode three, where we hear how the Collingwood Children's Farm was created and what it's been up to for the past 40 years. We speak with some of the founding members, including some older young farmers, and meet some workers. I'm Margot Foster. This podcast was part of a bigger project made possible by the Public Records Office of Victoria. It's produced by Patrick Beggs of Per Production in partnership with the Collingwood Children's Farm. It was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded.